back to Great Quarter. Guys, this is episode 60 or 76 of the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, senior retail analyst here at Freight Waves. I'm alongside lead economist Anthony Smith here at Freight Waves as well. And we're, today we're going to talk about consumer confidence and goods demand. We are starting to see some signs that it might be flatlining a little bit, uh, which is okay because it's up, you know, with double digits over 2019 in most categories, some categories well above that. So demand remains really good. Inventories remain really low and confidence is still pretty high, but we've got some mixed signals. So we're going to talk through those. We've also got a guest coming on in the back half of the show, Parker Woodward. He's the marketing director at route for me route for me is a route optimization software. We're going to talk to him about some of the current shipping delays, some of the challenges that uh, Parcel is dealing with, some of, the, some of the challenges that transportation is dealing with, and how route optimization can help clear up some inefficiencies and really uh, and, and help keep freight moving. But I do want to take a moment to thank my sponsor, DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight perhaps best known for freight billing. DDC also offers customs brokerage processing to help companies clear customs faster. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. All right, Anthony, we've got a couple charts of the day for the people, both sonar charts today. I'm going to go first. I have the inbound ocean TEU volume index or IOTI.USA that is in blue. And then we have the IOTI from just one lane from, from the port of Yanxian, to the U.S. And you can see things are reviving. So the, the big point here is that the port of, port of Yanxian is clearing up. I believe now it is at 100% capacity on the outbound side. So they're back to full force. That is huge news for U.S. consumers, for U.S. importers, uh, really for the U.S. economy. 25% of Chinese exports to the U.S. come through this port. This is, of course, right outside of, of Shenzhen, just a massive economic region there. And uh, this is the fourth largest port in the world. Henry Byers came on our show just a couple weeks ago and said that he believed that the port of Yanxian would clear up faster than even the U.S. ports have. That seems to be coming true. That was a pretty good call. Here we are two weeks later. They're already back at full force. I will say, though, uh, the port of port officials in Yanxian believe it could take you know two or three weeks for them to clear the stacked boxes at the port. But the problems are that there is also boxes stacked at the warehouses in the area and on the factory floors in the area. It's actually the pileup is so bad that that factories are actually having to slow production because they don't have any more available space to put finished product. Uh, so yeah, we need to get this worked through. I'm sure the, the, the port is going to be working overtime for the next couple of weeks. But it's a good thing for U.S. importers. It's a good thing for U.S. consumers because, again, a lot of our stuff comes through that port. And uh, if, we don't, if, it didn't, if it didn't get cleared up now, we would be looking at a lot of empty shelves come holiday season. We still might be. Uh, we've definitely got a chance of that. But this is a big help to not get us there. So we're going to see definitely rising import volumes over the next couple of weeks as those clear through the backlog. Definitely. And I think one of the bigger, uh, other big takeaway is when we look at China, a lot of people get caught up in the U.S.-China relationship. I'm not much of a poli-sci guy, so I'll stay out of that. <laughs> but when thinking about it, a lot of people get caught up in wondering, okay, we're so dependent on China. That's definitely true. Um, no arguing that. But also, China's dependent on us. Largest uh, exporter is going to be the United States. So looking at it going both ways, I saw China's GDP expanded according to China. It's always exporting according to yeah. China. Yeah, you can always <laughs> but, take that with a grain of salt. Exactly. <laughs> but um, we're looking at it. It's definitely good to see that those flows are still going on. Yeah, definitely codependent on each other. The two world's largest economy going to be that way for uh, a really long time. What, uh, what chart you got for us? That's so 
I have industrial production overlaid with our very own flatbed outbound tender rejection index. So industrial production, of course, is going to be one of those big mainstay manufacturing indices when we're looking at it. I know I always talk about the ISM PMI, the ISM Purchasing Managers Index, but when looking at industrial production, that's going to be tangible goods. Zach Strickland always gets on me talking about some of these diffusion indices, <laughs> talking about, you know, some of these don't really quite mean anything because it's essentially feelings of what's going on with manufacturers. Like, he, he also doesn't like consumer confidence. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But when looking at it, it all measures out into tangible results. So those ISM PMI diffusion indices go into what's going on with new orders. Those new orders kind of get into what's happening within the industrial production index. And I've been really fixated on manufacturing for such a long time. I think it might be an upcoming segment for an economy lately. I don't know if okay, my team okay. can really make manufacturing entertaining and sexy, but they've worked miracles in the past. But looking at manufacturing, that increased production, that momentum that's ongoing, that's continuing to rise, is really going to be leading into downstream impacts with inflationary pressures. And that's one of those areas that I've been watching closely and will watch closely throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about inflation when we talk about some comments from Tractor Supply CEO Hal Lawton. Uh, so we'll come, that's coming up here when we do our buy or sell segment. So, Anthony, let's uh, run through you care or not. we got a few for the people today. The first one is on, I guess, uh, Zach Strickland's least favorite <laughs> uh, index. This is the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index. We just got the value for June. That was made public this morning. And the index popped more than seven points up to 127.3. This is the highest value that we've had since the beginning of the pandemic, February 2020. Anthony, you care or not about Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index popping all the way back up to 127? I care, but I will care even more at the end of the year if it's still elevated, if it's still moving in that same direction, just because by the end of the year, that's when we'll start to see where all the dust is settling with an employment, unemployment, all those uh, extended benefits or bonus benefits will be repealed, not just at a state by state level, but federally. I don't think there's going to be another expansion, uh, extension, I should say, in there. So I care, but I will care, and it's going to be a lot more meaningful at the end of the year. I agree with that. Um, but I'll say, yeah, I care for this one for sure. I mean, it's fifth straight month of, of positive growth, both expectations and uh, present situation increased. That's good. Here, I think, was the big takeaway is that short-term inflationary fears did increase, but it had little impact on confidence or even purchasing intentions. In fact, the percentage of people intending to make a big ticket purchase over the next uh, I can't remember if it's three or six months, actually increased uh, yeah. that uh, increased this month. I did want to talk to you about this. Like, do you think, but we are getting mixed signals on this. I'll say there's some other data that I saw out here from Bank of America. They cited a civic science survey that said this was actually a record number of people saying it was a bad time to buy a household good because prices were too high. Um, so, you know, I think it depends on who they're, who they're surveying, but we're seeing mixed signals. I just wanted to ask you, you know, from your lens with the savings rate where it is, I think it came down to 12%. Um, and, and also about debt levels, I think that's come down quite a bit. Where do you, th do you think consumers are in a position to continue this, this strong goods demand through the end of the year? And then also how do home prices play into this? Because I know that's giving a lot of consumers confidence, but at what point does it bubble over and that kind of becomes a negative? Yeah, so I think we're looking at it, first one, um, looking at uh, the momentum right now. As you said, savings rate's really high. We have a lot of cushion definitely with that um, those debts. So I think as we start to see the savings rate come down, it's going to trickle back down slowly but surely because the U.S. consumer is going to spend. Um, we have short-term memories. We see that money in the big account. Not all of it's just going to stay there. So that's going to start to slowly come down. It's going to be in 
I think it's going to be a gradual process. I don't think it's just going to flatline or anything like that. So I, that's going to start to slowly come down. I think we'll start to see credit card utilization on those rotating um, credit utilizations kind of start to elevate once again, slowly but surely. And so I think all that's going to mean that that consumption is going to kind of maintain and kind of continue. Calling a flatline, but as you mentioned earlier, it's extremely elevated. So even if it kind of gradually comes down, it's going to be a strong, healthy consumer overall. Um, with housing, uh, what, that was one of the areas I know Zach Strickland and I, we did a, I'm afraid to watch the full video, but I'm going to have to. We did a 2020 Outlook. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we did a 2020 yeah. Outlook, so I have to watch the entire video. See how far that's off. <laughs> yes. And so, but I'm happy for one of the takes I had was for housing and saying, even though if we did have a recession, that's going to be one of the resilient sectors. And I think on the way up, it's going to be the same thing on the way down because as pricing comes down, I think there's going to be a buyer at each price point. So even as prices start to come down, because it's, it's bidded up, you're seeing asking uh, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 over asking prices mm -hmm. in some situations. So as those prices start to come back down and, and get alleviated, more houses come onto the market, we'll see a buyer for each one of those price points as it starts to move down. If you can kind of picture your Econ 201 supply and demand pricing uh, a curve, once it starts to come down, there's going to be a buyer at each one of those pricing points. I think that curve is going to kind of flatten at a certain area. And then we'll get to a place where inventory is going to match and be at a sufficient level. But we've had a shortage of homes for some time. It just kind of exacerbated over this course from COVID. But yeah, I think housing is going to be, hopefully it doesn't bubble up and get keep going on into this elevated level. But I, I am optimistic about the industry overall. Yeah, I mean, demand is unwavering. We're, I mean, we're just secular demand, really, is what yeah. we have right now with millennials you know, entering the perfect prime buying age. We've got interest rates really low. That's probably not going to change for the foreseeable future. Uh, so, yeah. Good. Hey, millennials have been going through it with debt, college debt, uh, graduating some of them throughout out the Great Recession, now in their prime home buying years. And this is the market that I'm not making excuses for them, but I'm just saying, if you weren't a millennial, maybe... You know, offer your, you know, some sympathy points. Yeah, but don't, yeah, I think, don't, don't give them a trophy or nothing like that. But yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I can't, I can't <laughs> disagree. Let's, let's shift gear to Nike. So I, I wrote about this in Point of Sale yesterday. I was really blown away by Nike's quarter uh, in the midst of its makeover to a more direct consumer business. It posted a really strong quarter last week in which the company expanded gross margins by 850 basis points year over year. We are lapping last year where they had some... Uh, supply chain expenses that kind of squeezed margins as they tried to balance supply and demand. But 850 basis points, that is huge expansion. Uh, you care or not, Anthony? Uh, I only care because not spe specifically with Nike, but what it means for Nike and for other con or companies, I should say. So Nike is doing this. I think other companies are going to start to buy in. I started buying direct from a retailer specifically or a shipper, I should say, and there's something there. I mean, I could find that same good through another source, but there's something there. There's something meaningful from buying from, you know, I found Magic Spoon. I think all the ads and YouTubers are starting to get to me. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, let me try this. Now I'm like doing business directly from the actual producer, the shipper. So I think as we see Nike do this, I think other companies are going to start to follow suit. Yeah, I definitely think you're right there. I mean, look at Under Armour. They're also trying to take a page out of this. They're trying to cut ties with undifferentiated retailers and they're opening up new stores and, you know, they're beefing up their online presence and, and such. And I, I think if you go to the, if you go to the Nike um, website or you go through any of their apps, I mean, I have personal qualms with the sneakers app because yeah. I can never get any dang shoes that I want. But it is a great experience. Like, it is a very clean um, app and they just do a great job creating strong uh, experiences through content and through all kinds of things. 
And you're right about more doing direct consumer sales. I mean, the financial benefit is very clear. It, it like it's logical, it makes sense. It's like we cut out the middleman, we keep their margin, we keep we we can charge a higher price. That that is pretty clear. But I think the true value of this is in the data, uh, in the data that they get to keep from knowing exactly where the buyer is, what what kind of things they're buying, where they need to be placing inventory. That's what really allows them to build a digital supply chain. That's what Amazon's realized, and that's what Nike's going to realize, and I think many others are going to realize this. That yes, the margin and the and and the the higher revenue is great, but long term, I think the data is going to be even more valuable as they build out digital supply chains. They build better planning and better. I mean, th- that's been the biggest thing about COVID is it's thrown demand planning forecasts out the out the window. But if you keep the whole of the data, you can you can build better plans. You can have continuous planning and have digital twins, as they call it in the yeah. biz. I, I I really like the move. I'm I'm loving. And it's like Nike's just now reaping the benefits of these. It's going to be very apparent over the next decade and as they continue to be dominant. Well, one of the big things that you mentioned that I, I definitely want to kind of hone in on, it's not insignificant at all, the user experience. And I can't really kind of harp on it enough, that user experience, just a simple thing as an app, I will just destroy an app so quickly out of my phone, just uninstall if it's just, you know, atrocious, or I won't even download it if it's like at a 2.5 out of 5 stars. Like, right. I'm, not, I'm not dealing with this. So I think that user interface, making it easy, making it convenient for the user, goes a long way with kind of maintaining that loyalty and building out that ecosystem. Yeah, design-led future, for yeah. sure. All right, uh, let's, we, we have another one, but we will save it for the end because we do have a guest waiting. Let's go ahead and bring Parker on the show. We've got Parker Woodward. He is the managing, or the marketing director, rather. Sorry, marketing director at Route for Me. Parker, thanks for joining the show. Welcome to Great Quarter, guys. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Parker, this is uh, your introduction, Route for Me's introduction to FreightWaves TV. So give us a little background on yourself and Route for Me. Yeah, sure. Uh, Route for Me is a software-based company, and we help uh, small, medium, large, and enterprise companies to uh, plan and optimize the final mile and really just help. uh, You were talking a little bit about it earlier in the show, the customer experience, which is really, really important. So we provide easy-to-use software and and, uh, just help our customers to help their customers to get get to them on time and make sure that uh, everyone gets their packages. And I love working here, especially around Christmas time, to make sure kids uh, get all their Christmas packages. So we, we deliver smiles at the same time. Yeah, that's good to hear. Let, uh, Parker, tell me a little bit about your target customer. Who is, um, you know, are you guys selling to retailers, to shippers, or are you selling to uh, trucking companies? What, who are you guys selling the, the software to? Sure. Uh, most of the most of our customers are going to be uh, anyone who has a, a high number of stops. So we're a little bit unique in that we don't necessarily segment by um, size of industry, small, medium, large. Um, but we find that if you have, you know, ten uh, plus stops on a route, you can benefit from route optimization, route planning, and really some logistics uh, help there. So there's a lot of inefficiencies similar to what you'd see at, at the beginning of the supply chain. Uh, for example, filling up a, a container to only 70% full, the inefficiencies are prevalent throughout the entire supply chain, especially at the final mile where you know a driver can actually make it to one or two or three more deliveries if, if they can. It saves a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of gas. So there's a lot of green emissions and carbon emissions that uh, we're trying to save. And to date, I think we've saved the equivalent uh, of emissions of uh, all of the trees in New York City times 17 or so. So we're pretty proud of that. So Parker, when I was kind of poking around on the website, I thought it was really cool. Maybe you can talk to this a a little bit, but we were just talking about it, the user interface and how important that is. And I see one of the mainstays in almost every office, I don't think any company is going to really fully get rid of it, but it's Excel. It seems like you can kind of 
and and just kind of run with it. So what the ups, the training period or, or how easy is it for it for you to use for oncoming clients? That's probably the most critical element to us. Uh, we try to take even the perspective of uh, a driver. So we want to take the perspective from our mobile app of a driver being able to just download the app and they are dispatched a route. Maybe it has a hundred stops on it and they can get assistance with navigation, take notes if they need to take a picture. And it'd be really intuitive for them so that their training time, their onboard time is less and they just know what to do and they have the tools that they need to succeed. So it's really critical, um, even from a perspective of route planning. So if you just need to upload a spreadsheet, we want to make it as simple and easy as possible. So we've seen our users literally just uh, start a free trial and start to use it and see benefits right away. Of course, not everyone's necessarily as tech savvy, uh, so we always want to make sure that we're there for them so to uh, assist with any of the user experience. So once people kind of get it, it's sort of like learning to ride a bike. You know, you don't forget how to, it sort of clicks, and we see people start to use the system within a matter of less than an hour. Hey, Parker, uh, it's Andrew here. I just wanted to ask, you know, we, we, pretty much everybody that comes on, you have to ask, what did COVID do to your business? I mean, it's been uh, it's been a boon for e-commerce, it's been a boon for uh, last mile delivery. I assume that that's made your service in higher demand. What's the COVID impact been on your business? It's absolutely, uh, it's been, you know, we've been fortunate that it's been a positive impact for us. And we've also uh, reached out to and made an offer during COVID uh, for any humanitarian group, not for profit or government group uh, through COVID. And we've actually helped quite a few organizations um, with a number of initiatives from feeding, you know, people and reaching people in need. And we made those services free to those organizations, which was just a wonderful thing that we could do. We've seen, I think the biggest shift is that shift from, um, you know, uh, direct to consumer shifts and, you know, uh, from something who is a wholesale fish supplier going straight to those customers, creating a brand new, uh, you know, productized service of, of, of an actual product. So we've seen a, a lot of uh, decision making. I think that's maybe the biggest one is that uh, companies made decisions, stuck to them quickly and knew that they needed to make those changes and implement uh, as much efficiency gains as they could. As we've seen driver shortages, microchip shortages, vehicle shortages, there's less available workforce. And so we have to make the most of it. So how does a company with 100 vehicles and 100 drivers do the same amount of work, but now only 70% of that workforce? So we've been able to assist there, and it's been critical to those companies' operations. Yeah, Porter, there are uh, shortages abound. I mean, in everything from chicken wings to uh, bicycles have been just so hard to get over the past year. What you know, what you talked about some of the challenges that you guys have faced, that your customers have faced. What what are your customers saying? Are there any general trends that you can paint for us that you're hearing from your customers? Just you know, in generally about shipping delays or about uh, congestion, anything from them? I'd say, um, of course, there's shipping delays, There's, uh, and that continues to be the case. Um, from the most part, I'd say for our customers, they're really concerned more with the, the workforce uh, shortages, the driver shortages. And, you know, from what I'm seeing, that's a retention problem. Um, you know, so companies are starting to invest and make sure that they're keeping drivers, onboarding them, training them, giving them a really great experience, um, making sure they're part of the culture of the organization and really retaining them. Because uh, even from, you know, an over the road trucking perspective, there are, you know, plenty of uh, plenty of truckers, but that pool tends to cycle out and churn out. So it's really a retention problem that we're seeing. And uh, that's that's the biggest thing we're hearing from our customers is, is that we need we need your help and we need more more people to work as well. 
So Parker, I, on my macroeconomic mind, I always thinking about the outlook, the scope of everything. Of course, throughout COVID, we saw a strong demand for your service in your sector. But what do you think the outlook is moving forward? What are you seeing right now? Do you see anything in the cards as saying that there is going to be continued demand that's going to be amplified in this segment, so I'm going to be here to grow? Or is this a segment that's just going to be built around capitalizing on the current growth? It's absolutely going to continue. Um, from the perspective of e-commerce, uh, you know, the e-commerce trend is continuing. And, you know, we have uh, trends that, you know, curbside, you know, pickup, curbside delivery. Those trends, I believe, will continue. Um, prior to this, prior to COVID, they were a bit of a novelty um, and a bit of a luxury. But now they're becoming a, more of a necessity. And so I think that those are going to continue and only grow, um, especially as the supply chain starts to even out and move more towards or back a little bit more towards uh, service versus just goods. I think right now COVID has really pushed things into, you know, e-commerce and product and goods. And we'll see a little bit of shift and a little relieving of the supply chain as, as, as that happens. But I really, uh, I think, especially, I kind of think we're in a little bit of a, an automation robot bubble or robotics bubble and myself, but it's going to lead uh, in that bubble will actually lead to uh, the further growth trend of, of product and e-commerce and final mile delivery. So. Margaret, explain that a little bit more. What do you mean by, uh, by a robotics bubble? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Uh, I think you see with mini bubbles, you know, a housing bubble, uh, if you recall the dot-com bubble, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, investment, a lot of money going into uh, something in new technologies. And there's a lot of money. For example, Hyundai just took a controlling share um, of Boston Robotics. If you've seen the cool robot dogs, uh, I think it's a wonderful investment. And so, as everyone probably knows, there's uh, automated vehicles, automated trucks, autonomous driving, different levels of autonomy coming into the market. And uh, as that comes on, there's got to be someone to take things off the trucks, put them on, uh, load them, put them in the warehouses. So there's a lot of technologies going on and we don't know exactly what's going to pan out, but there's a lot of companies who want to make sure that they're not left behind, uh, like being left behind in the dot-com. So I think you see Google came out of that dot-com and they're investing very heavily, for example, in Waymo and many other industries. So I, I think we'll see you know, here in five years, the winners uh, of that, and we'll see some really big shifts, especially as we go into fleet electric, fleet electrification. So there's a lot of technologies there. So it's uh, kind of the wild west, I think, right now, and very exciting. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely very exciting. All right, Parker, before I let you get out of here, there's, I uh, don't want to put you on the spot, but we do uh, do a little segment, especially for, uh, you know, new, uh, new participants in Freight Waves TV. I want you to shed some light. So is there something going on in your uh, corner of the logistics world that not enough people are talking about that you should shed some light on. So give us one thing or a couple of things that uh, that not enough people are talking about that that you think is really important. You know, um, I, I think it's one thing to adopt technology. We we hit on it a little bit earlier, but just making sure that that technology is friendly and is actually helping you know not just your end customers but your internal customers uh, to make sure that you're adopting technology that makes sense for them. There's always people. Um, at the heart of this. So take care of the people, take care of your internal people, make sure you're putting the right processes in place with the right product. And that's where I've seen really, really great success from our customer bases are those that really take that to heart, make sure that they're adopting the technology that makes sense, not just for their company, but for their internal people as well as their external people. And I think the biggest one is customer experience, you know, that uh, customer experience providing 
providing as much as you can within our software platform. We can provide an Uber-like uh, experience to a customer for a final mile delivery. And that just goes that little extra bit. It may be a bit of a luxury right now, but I promise you it's going to become a necessity in the future if it's not already. So I think that's what's happening from a small uh, small business perspective. We're seeing a lot of small businesses really want to take on and compete uh, and you know build their brands. And they can do so through a really great customer experience. I couldn't agree more, Parker. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Hey, where should we send anybody that wants to learn some more information about Route for Me? Check out routeforme.com. And uh, if you'd like, uh, you can hit uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, or, you know, I tell people, if you have the capability, send me a messenger pigeon. Uh, I'll, I'll promise to write back. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Parker, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, guys. Messenger pigeon. Have you ever seen one of those? I don't no, think I've ever seen one. Did they ever have it? I mean, in New York, did anybody ever keep pigeons on their? On yes, their I've seen like flocks of pigeons, and I always wondered when I was in Brooklyn, like, is that Mike Tyson up there on the? Yeah, road? right. Didn't he have? <laughs> he used to keep a bunch of pigeons. He had a lot. Yeah, had, I'm not going to say nothing to him though. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. All right. Uh, so we we did have one more you care or Let's run through it. Uh, this one is on FedEx. FedEx is currently working to, in their own words, substantially increase its capacity ahead of the holiday season by building out its infrastructure. President and COO Raj Samramian uh, said during the company's Q4 earnings call Thursday, the infrastructure build out will include 16 new automated facilities expected to be ready in time for peak season. Anthony, you care or not? I care only because of this investment isn't just going to be for Q4. I know right. it's going to help out Q4, but to make this type of new investment into infrastructure, that means they expect this to be long-term. We're looking at what's going on with housing. There's been a bunch of people that said, hey, why don't we just make more mills? There is a huge undertaking for those building those mills. It's going to be a three-year project minimum, millions and millions of dollars going in, and then by the time they come online, it's going to be too late. Right. So them doing this tells me that there's an expectation that there's going to be a need for this, not just now in the fourth quarter, but moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. I would say that I care simply because it might help me get my stuff in time yeah. for Christmas. So yeah, I'm definitely. This is a big. Um, this is definitely a, a big expansion. So I think they said they've got about 140 of these facilities right now. So this is a, at least a 10% expansion, at least in the number of facilities. I don't know exactly on square footage or anything, but uh, highly automated. They've got some incredible technology going in going into this thing. Automated picking, six side scanning, all kinds of stuff that they've been developing over the last few years. So yeah, it's it's a big deal. Um, they said the one problem that they're facing, though, biggest headwind, the same thing that Parker just told us, labor. They're yeah. worried that they're not going to have enough package handlers at the end of the year. They're talking about overtime and raising wages, as we've seen, across the board to try to get people back uh, into jobs. But, but that is definitely a, a problem for them. And we're going to keep seeing new surcharges. They just put UPS and FedEx just put in new peak surcharges last week. Going to continue seeing more of those. Right, right. All right, Tony, um, we've got here, we've got a quick moment. We can run through the good, the bad, and the Anthony. We didn't get to do this one last week. Uh, so what do you got for us on the good, the bad, and the Anthony? So keeping on that theme of employment, I have something on the employment landscape. The good consumer confidence co is, is really complementing what's being seen in the quit rate. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they put out the quit rate, which not a lot of people talk about, but it's something significant. It's at 2.7%. This is going to be the highest level that's been seen in years. And so the quit rate is these are these voluntary separations at the employee level. So if you're feeling confident about your job prospects, you're leaving, you're going on to another job. So the quit rate is at historic highs. That's the good. The bad is jobs claims are stalling out a bit. I mean, not like they're spiking up or anything that just those pandemic lows back to back weeks. 
are easing a bit. And so there's a few factors that might be going into that. That might be employees not being able, employers not being able to accommodate certain employees. So maybe it's childcare that's an issue for them now that they are able to kind of stay at home or were used to being able to stay at home. Another one might be employers requiring vaccinations. That could be another friction or, or area that might be a, a point of contention. You gotta get vaccinated. Say, I don't, I don't want it. I refuse, I wanna wait. Okay, here's your termination date moving right. forward. So okay. that could be another area that's gonna be propping up jobless claims as well. All right, so in uh, the Anthony, so you got? Yes, the Anthony, the friction between uh, the two and the lagging. So. We're, we're needing more and more employees. And so right now you just mentioned the, uh, the wages, the, the bumps, the increases, the prices that, that's being put in place for a lot of people. That's going to come to an end soon. And so there's a pendulum that always swings. I know sometimes people forget that, you know, it's an employee market or it's employer market. It always swings back and forth by the end of the year or beginning of 2022. That pendulum might start swinging back the other way and employers can kind of have a pick of the litter. So I, the Anthony is get those jobs while they're here, get those uh, those benefits while they're here, because by the end of the year or maybe early first quarter 2021, it's not going to be the same landscape. Yeah. 9.3 million jobs open as of right now. Definitely not going to look that way at the end of the year. Right. Right. OK. You heard it here from Anthony. Get the job now. <laughs> Go find it. Uh, we've got a bunch of jobs here at Freightwaves open. I think we've exactly. still got more than 30 open. We'll put the uh, link to the website uh, in the show notes. It's, I think it's for, if you just Google Freightwaves.com hiring, you'll find uh, the link there. Uh, but definitely got a bunch of job opens. Hey, we've got a huge virtual event on tomorrow, the North American Logistics Technology Summit. Definitely tune into that. You can register for free. It's at 9 a.m. You can catch a conversation with me and Christy Montgomery from Kinko Innovation Lab. You don't want to miss it. See you then tomorrow, 9 a.m. Thank you.